Romans, excuse me, Revelation 11, then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations. This would have been the court of the Gentiles for those of you that read, uh, have familiar with your Old Testaments. They will trample the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. And when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them and their bodies will lie in the main streets of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt. That's an important sentence to remember. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. They stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. And then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third, third terror is coming quickly. God bless you. You can be seated and I am so happy to see you out here tonight to study this book. This is a complex chapter, and probably if you will follow along with me on this, I won't be able to finish this chapter tonight, but if you'll follow along tonight and next week, this chapter will give you a lot of understanding and a great deal of understanding as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. It's a chapter that has to do with not only the church and the Jewish nation, it's a chapter that is full of symbolism. And when I recapped everything when we came back off the of sabbatical, I recapped all the, the ways of interpreting Revelation. And I recapped, you know, the symbolism, the prophetic typology. This is where all of that really, really begins to play in very deeply. <clears throat> There's another aspect to this chapter, and that is the preaching of the gospel. Because the preaching of the gospel is it's both the most wonderful, it's the most sweetest, it's the most powerful, it's the most exhilarating thing. It's like I shared with you last week. Being close to God is exhilarating and terrifying. And those of you who have a proper appreciation for who God is, He is an awesome God. And that word awesome is not about a new car or a hamburger. It's you fall on your face in trembling in His presence, and yet He's a loving Father. It's an exhilarating thing to hear from the Lord, but it's a terrifying thing sometimes to have to bring the word of the Lord. Some of the older preachers in the Puritan days would describe preaching the gospel as both sweet and bitter. There's a sweetness to preaching the gospel, but there's a bitterness to preaching the gospel as well because the bitterness is about sin and the sweetness is about the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. But as a pastor, I can testify to you tonight that over my 42 years of, of, even longer than that, my 42 years of marriage and pastoral ministry, but over all the years I've preached the gospel, seeing people grow in Christ is the most wonderful, sweetest, most powerful thing that I know. It was that that brought me back into the pastorate when I grew tired of traveling and grew tired of the kind of work that I was doing for the Assemblies of God. I just missed being able to be with people week in and week out. And so with that in mind, terrifying and exhilarating, seeing people grow in Christ, these are the things that I'd like you to keep in mind as we go through this. Let's first of all deal with some of the symbolism. Here we go with the temple. The temple, and if you'll notice, I don't normally do the outlines, and when I realized there was nobody here to do the outline, I just printed off the outline that I sent them, so all your fill-ins are complete tonight. 
So you can take lots of extra notes if you want to. And if any, nobody needs to come up to me tonight and say, what was the fill-in for this? I missed it. Because you've got them all, you know. You've got the cheat sheet tonight. The temple. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, let's talk about the temple for a moment. The temple, in my opinion, and this is a humble way of saying, I don't know. The temple may or may not be rebuilt during the tribulation. I personally have always not believed. I've also spoken about the fact why I believe it's wrong for Christians to give to rebuild a temple where temple sacrifices will be made. And occasionally I've seen where let's give to build a temple, help Israel to build a temple uh, so that the sacrifices can be made again. Friends, there's the final sacrifice has been made and his name is Jesus Christ. And we don't need the sacrifices of bulls and goats and all of that sort of stuff. When the temple, if the temple is rebuilt, God will see to it that it's rebuilt during the tribulation. I have my own opinions about that. They are my opinions. I will share with you on that. But what I try to do is keep you in track with what we know we can interpret from the Bible, from Old Testament prophecy, and what we can interpret from the book of Revelation. Out of all fairness, because last week after church, I called somebody last week and just to say, hey, I was so glad to see you and to be here. And he brought up the series of books by uh, uh, um, Hal Lindsey, and then he brought up that series of books that uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote together. They're fascinating books. I've read all of them, read them more than once, read them several times, and I brought them up. But those, we don't know that's exactly how things are going to happen. How Lindsay believes that the temple will be rebuilt during the tribulation because the Jews will make certain concessions to a Roman Antichrist who will let them rebuild the temple and restart sacrifices, and then he will turn upon them and Jerusalem will be trampled down by warring armies from all the nations. For 42 months, they'll, they'll just say that there's nothing but war, and they will accept the false prophet. Tim LaHaye does a wonderful job of illustrating this in his novels about the last days, what happens after the rapture, how Lindsay happens to believe that. I happen to read this, and when I look at the Old Testament, and, and again, I'm not a scholar, I am a pastor, but I have spent over 40 years studying this book and finally come to the point where I feel comfortable in preaching it. But when I look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and all those prophecies and just compare Scripture with Scripture, trusting that I somehow know that I'm going to come with what I need to know. The early church didn't have Hal Lindsey. The early church didn't have commentaries. The early church didn't have CBN. The early church didn't have all the things that we have today. What they had was the, the apostles and the preachers of the gospel, and they had the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the New Testament that you and I have. And you've got to remember, these letters that we're reading now were being circulated. But I believe what we're seeing here is the ultimate salvation and protection of the nation of Israel, because the Old Testament definitely prophesies there will come a time of a national revival in Israel where they will mourn for their sins and they will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I also see this as the Jews and the Gentiles merge together in one, and I think I'll be able to show you that as we walk through this chapter tonight. Measuring in the Bible is a symbol of preparation for either destruction or preservation. That's what measuring is in the Bible. Measure off 3,000 feet outside the town walls in every direction, east, south, west, north, with the town at the center. This area will serve as the larger pasture land for the towns. What's happening here is that there is ground being measured and there's ground being protected. The one who does the measuring and obeys is John. Now, remember, we close chapter 10, where John is back upon the earth. John is commissioned to preach and to prophesy to the nations and prophesy against kings. And now John is told to measure. Now, he's in the spirit. This is not a literal thing that he's seeing, but he's told to measure what he's seeing in the spirit. We see preservation or destruction when measuring happens in the Bible. God has promised in Psalm 60 and verse 6, God has promised this by His holiness. I will divide up Shechem with joy. I will measure out the valley of Succoth. 
He's setting aside a part of land and protecting it. In Isaiah, you will see where God measures and sets that as parts of Israel aside for destruction because of the sin in the nation and especially the sin in the temple. There is a particular Greek word that is used here for temple that when you exegete this passage, it stands out to you and go, wow, this is not the normal Hebrew word used for temple. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And this word is used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, and it's called naos. And naos designates the most sacred parts of the temple. This would be the altars and the Holy of Holies. I believe that naos here is representing the faithful people of God. And I base that upon we are the body of Christ. God has said he dwells with his people. We are the sanctuary of the Lord. This building is not the church. We are the church. The Holy Spirit doesn't inhabit this building. He is everywhere, but he doesn't inhabit this building. He dwells in our hearts by faith through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? So that word naos really stands out to me as something that we have to pay close attention to. The outer courtyard is separated from the naos because it represents those who compromise as well as the unbelievers. We've already seen in Revelation chapter and in the seven letters to the church the warnings to those who compromise, but we're also seeing the unbelieving Jews that are addressed in these seven letters. This outer courtyard being trampled down by the Gentiles, it was known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. We've talked about that before in other message series, especially when we went through the book of Daniel on a Wednesday night. What I want you to see is this part is measured off so that they can't touch the naos. They can't touch the people of God. And I feel like all of a sudden I've gotten real loud. Have I? Okay. I don't know who said yes, but I've gotten real loud. So I'll try to hold it down. If I get too loud, just do this at me. Because this stuff excites me, okay? What I believe that naos represents here are the faithful Jews and the Gentiles that are grafted into the body of Christ. That's what the apostle writes about, that we are one body. There is now no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, no male nor female. We are all grafted into one body, and that's called the church, which is the body of Christ. Can we give them a hand of praise for that tonight? So, remember, remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. We're it was cold in my office, and it's hot out here. We're dealing with apocalyptic literature here. We're dealing with imagery, and words matter. Looking at these words really, really matters to our being able to interpret and understand. It's why I don't believe this is necessarily a literal temple. I believe God is talking about His people, His people, the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm not saying that during the tribulation that there will not be a temple rebuilt, but that's not the temple that God is protecting here from the outer court of the Gentiles. Does that, does that make sense to you? It's not what he, naos is that which is sacred. If that temple is rebuilt, it will not be naos because Jesus was the final sacrifice. Can we give him another hand of praise for that? I mean, when you put that together, when you put that together, things really begin to make sense. And the measuring rod is in, is the Bible. The plumb line, the measuring rod, is always the Word of God that God has given to us. Look at Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 1 with me. When I looked again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going, I asked. Now, this is the prophet Zechariah. He replied, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. And there through the prophet Zechariah, God has given a prophecy about not only his people, but about the sins of those who claim to be his people. If you'll look in Amos chapter 7 and verse 7, then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. What is the plumb line? It's the word of God. I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined, and the temples of Israel will be destroyed, and I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Now, what's interesting about these measurements, we are measured against the word of the Lord. 
We are measured against God's word. However, our righteousness is found in Christ Jesus. But the mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ is not that he goes, oh, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and then I go out and live like the devil. If somebody tells you that, they have had a counterfeit experience with Christ. Nowhere in all the writings of John Calvin and and reading his institutes, doing devotions in his institutes because they are wonderful, nowhere did I find John Calvin say, once you're saved, you can live like the devil and still be a Christian. He says, if you're saved, you're going to grow in grace and you're going to persevere and you're going to live like a Christian should. If you're not, then you won't. If you're not saved, then you may claim it, but you never live it out. So the plumb line here is that we're seeking. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by how we keep the Bible. We're not saved by how we keep the commandments. We're saved by faith in Christ Jesus. But the Holy Spirit begins to do something in us to all of a sudden we begin to change. And in our church, that doctrine is called the doctrine of sanctification. It's what we teach on in, in, in discovering uh, spiritual maturity in 201 that Norma teaches for us. It's how do we grow in grace and how do we grow in faith in Christ? It's interesting to me, though, that no measurements are given. Even though John is told to measure, no measurements are given until you get to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 16. There is a reason for that. It's because we are moving along in this prophetic timetable. We're moving along with these principles that abide, but the city of God has not yet come to earth. When he measured it, speaking of the city, when he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. That's pretty stinking big. Don't you agree? I mean, that's pretty big. 14 wide, 14 high, 14 deep. That's a big cube. That's a big square. And this is symbolic, and I'll wait till we get there to deal with that. So, what I see here is God saying He's going to protect His people. It's going to be massive. Heaven is going to be full. Let me say it again, because a few of you right down here got it. Heaven is going to be full. Heaven is going to be full. God's going to pull His people through. And if you can stand the pulling, God's going to pull you through. And that's what you've got to hang on to. Heaven is going to be full. I'm praying for your children, my children, your grandchildren, my grandchildren, your neighbors, my neighbors. We're praying that God will bring them to know him. That statement I'm making right now has got everything to do with applying Revelation chapter 11 to our lives. Your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, our community, my neighbors, my children, that they know the Lord. Heaven is going to be full. God will protect his people. Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and its birds can make nests in its shade. What's he simply doing there? He's describing what the kingdom of God's going to be like. It's going to be massive. Now, let's look at what gets probably the most controversial treatment in so many different writers And these are the two witnesses. I remember when I took my first course in prophetic literature when I was in Bible college, I walked out of there going more confused than when I started the class. I didn't have to repeat the class, but I wanted to repeat the class. And I remember going, wow, how can you, because in America and in Western civilization, we're so technical and we're so measured in everything, you know, not Europeans mock us because we don't use the metric system because it's more accurate. We want to be accurate in everything, but when you deal with this prophetic literature and this prophetic imagery, and then when you read it and you realize there are no chapters and verses here. You know, those came much later when a a monk decided to add chapters and verses, and sometimes I don't always agree personally when I read the Bible how those chapters and verses break down, but I'm sure glad they're there because when Jesus was preaching, he'd say, now you remember the story of. Well, today I can say go to chapter 10, verse 6, and we all know right where to go. So this is important, and I want you to follow along with me on these two witnesses. Look at 11, uh, verse 3 with me. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy or preach during those 1260 days. 
These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now, notice where they're standing. They're, they're close to God. They stand before the, they're on the earth, but they stand before the Lord. And if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. And this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When Tim LaHaye first began releasing these books, two other pastor friends of mine, we began reading these books together, and we would dialogue. And when we could get together and have coffee, we'd dialogue on our different thoughts. And when we couldn't get together, we'd call each other up in the days when we had great big old cell phones, and we'd talk over those great big old cell phones. But we were all agreed that this, this passage, this would make a wonderful movie. Can you imagine two preachers preaching and all of a sudden the fire of God coming out of their mouth, consuming their enemies? And I remember making the comment and then feeling ashamed of it. I preached to a few places that I wish the fire of God had to come out of my mouth and consume my enemies. I've had knives pulled on me. I've had guns pulled on me. I've had beer thrown on me. I've been slugged for preaching the gospel. And I got to tell you, sometimes I'm not as spiritual as I'd like to be. There's a little bit of carnality to creep in there and say, God, I'd like to be a son of thunder right now. Call down the fire and brimstone on them, you know? And, and I read this and I was like, wow, Tim LaHaye just did a glorious job of, of, of doing this. And, and as he and, and Jerry Jenkins wrote this, However, again, and you might say, Pastor, who are you, are you to disagree with Tim LaHaye? Well, my name is Dennis Clanton, by the way, and, and your name is whoever you are. We can discuss these. I have a biblical reason for not believing that this is literal fire coming out of their mouth. It may be so, but I don't think that's what it is. First of all, they prophesy for the same period mentioned in verse 42 and that is the three and a half, uh, three and a half years or 1260 days. That's an important prophetic symbol for us. It's half of what we know as the trib great tribulation period. But they are identified only, look at this, they are only identified, listen, that sentence I wrote there, they are only identified as two olive trees and two lampstands. They are not identified as Moses and Enoch. They are not identified as Enoch and Elijah. They are not identified by any name like that that would have been unfamiliar to the Romans. The Romans wouldn't have been familiar with Enoch. The Romans wouldn't have been that They might have known something about Elijah from the preaching of the, of the Hebrews. But by and large, Caligula or Nero would have known nothing. Titus would have known nothing about these two men that we just talked about. And there are some great people who believe that's who they are. I'm going to attempt to tell you why I don't think that's true. But I think the two olive trees and the two lampstands, we can find this in the Bible. Look with me at Zechariah chapter 4 tonight. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand, and what are these two olive branches that pour out golden oil through two gold tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. Who were those two anointed ones? It was Jerubbabel and it was, excuse me, Joshua and Zerubbabel, who worked for the good of a city that was being trampled down by the Gentiles. They worked for the good of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at that time was being trampled down by the Gentiles. They're going to rebuild a temple. And that temple is going to cause people to weep who remembered the old temple because it's not the temple that's prophesied about in Ezekiel, one that's even more glorious than the former temple. That more glorious temple was not even Herod's temple. That more glorious temple is you and me. We are the temple of God. We are the body of Christ. And Zerubbabel, that's a hard word to say when you're preaching, by the way, Zerubbabel and Joshua are a king and a priest. Now, keep following with me here. This king and this priest 
work for the good of a city, being trampled down by the Gentiles. What city was that? The city of God, the city of Jerusalem. These two men are in a place where they, are be, they have an anointing, those lampstands, and there's a reservoir there in, 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 in Zechariah. That's symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have an anointing. I have an anointing tonight. But these two preachers, these two prophets, whoever they are, they're clothed in burlap or sackcloth, and that's a sign of mourning and humility. They're not dressed in a pair of jeans and a navy blue blazer. They're not dressed in a collar and a black cassock. These are men who are mourning over the sins of the city. These are men who have humbled themselves before God. And the fire from their mouth represents the preaching of the Word of God. That's the fire from their mouth. Because we can go back to Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, and Jeremiah says, therefore, this is what the… By the way, I like your fill-ins being filled in. I can just kind of keep cooking with gas because you don't have nothing to write down. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of heaven army says, because the people are talking like this, my messages or my sermons, my words will flame out of your mouth and burn the people like kindling wood. I can remember when I was pastoring that little church that I've told you about in Macon that it, we, Becky and I took that is split five times, and it was in a peck of trouble, bankruptcy, all kinds of things going on. I'd been there about two years, and I was so tired. I was so exhausted. I was building a business on the side to support Becky and I, and just so much going on, trying to build a day school, trying to keep up with 22% interest payments that the church had. And we had, uh, you know, in two years, we probably were about 40 or 50 people. We started with 19 people there. We were about 40 or 50 people. And I had anywhere from a twelve dollars to a $14,000 a month mortgage payment alone to meet. And I was just exhausted. And then one day, this lady whose husband was a pastor there in Macon, Georgia, pastored an African Methodist Episcopal church. She drove over to our church. She knocked on my door. She said, the Lord told me to come pray for you today. And she laid her hands on me, and she prayed these very words over my life. I nearly collapsed while that lady prayed for me and held my hands. And she prayed, and she says, God, let your word be like the hammer of Jeremiah in his mouth. Let it be like a fire that consumes all of his enemies. And I've told you before what happened as a result. Friends, the preaching of the word of God is powerful. It's by the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to say. The loss. It may be mocked, it may be scorned, it may be done poorly, or it may be done well. It may done, be done falsely, or it may be done in the purest of hearts. But the preaching of the Word of God is a powerful thing. Amen? Amen? Let's give him a hand of praise for that. What is happening here? These men are preaching such powerful sermons that an unbelieving world is convicted of its sin. An unbelieving world is convicted of his sin. And conviction hurts. Conviction will make you mourn. Conviction will make you uncomfortable. Could it be Enoch and Elijah? It's possible. In all fairness to you, I will give you three great church names. Tertullian, Hippolytus, and even the great Jerome believed that it was Enoch and Elijah. The reason they believed it was Enoch and Elijah is because the Bible says that God, Enoch walked so close to God that God took him up and he hadn't died and that Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire. And they say, and this is their reason, so track with me, please listen to me. I mean, the, I admire those three men. I admire, I love, especially Tertullian. I love them. Tertullian, by the way, prayed in the spirit. He was a, a very unique man. However, they base that upon a passage from the book of Hebrews says that it's appointed unto man once to die and after the death, the judgment. Well, the reason I don't buy that with all respect, and I'm not being facetious, deepest, deepest respect for the three of them. The reason I don't buy that 
is because when the rapture happens, there's going to be a whole bunch of us that don't die. We're just going to be immediately carried into the presence of the Lord. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? Now, Hal Lindsey and, and uh, Tim LaHaye both believe that, that they are. And so I'm just being honest and sharing with you. You have to do your own study and compare Scripture with Scripture. I'm not giving you a novel. My job is not to tell you a story. My job is to preach to you what the Word says and compare Scripture with Scripture. So you're tracking with me so far? And so I know many of you have read those books I know many of you, have, and the easiest thing in the world for me would be to just kind of ski over this and not deal with it, but I really, I want you to be equipped so that when people talk to you, it makes sense when you look at it. When, when you look at these passages, it makes sense what's going on. Let's look a little more carefully. They are lampstands, the Bible says. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, the lampstands are the church. They're believers. Joshua and Zerubbabel were the high priest and the king, and the church is called a kingdom of priests. God has made us now both kings and priests. As a matter of fact, as men in your homes, you were prophet, priest, and king. Aren't you grateful for that? And with our marriage retreat this weekend, and I see some of you guys here tonight. I'm so glad you're here. But when I served communion to those that were at the marriage retreat this weekend, I served the husbands as symbolic of being prophet, priest, and king, head of their home, love your family, love your wife as Christ loves the church. So they broke the bread, they gave the cup to their wives, and then we talked about what happens when a, when a church submits to Christ. Who could help but submit to our loving Heavenly Father? Who could help but submit to Jesus, who knows all about me and loves me anyway? Who could help but submit to Jesus that says, Son, you know, that's not okay, but I'm not going to give up on you. I love you. I'm going to make you more than a conqueror. If you can stand the pull and he'll pull you through, God believes in you tonight. Can you say amen? Who can't help but submit to that? Because when you submit to him, he blesses you and you become what you're supposed to be. And when we understand the husband and wife imagery, there's something powerful there. When we look at this imagery, there's something powerful there as well because the church is a kingdom of priests today. It's why we in Protestant churches don't go to a priest to confess our sins. It's okay to confess your faults one to another and pray that you may be healed, but we don't do that in order to have our sins remitted. We do that for encouragement and accountability. Can you say amen to that? However, we minister in a priestly role in this world, and that priestly role is we represent the world to God. And by representing the world to God, we pray for them, we intercede for them, we worship God, we make sacrifices in prayer and sacrifices in giving and sacrifices in time to be sure the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Nobody was a greater prophet, priest, and king in the kingdom of heaven than the apostle Paul, who was shipwrecked, who was beaten, who suffered all manners of persecution, all so that lost people could know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all that he did, God used to put the word of the Lord in our hands tonight. Can we give him one more hand of praise this evening? So what was their ministry? Their ministry was simply to prophesy or to preach. Therefore, our mission is the same, is to testify for Jesus Christ. The length of time of their ministry, and by the way, we looked at this last week. Don't ever forget that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. When we testify about Jesus, we're prophesying. Prophecy is not something weird where all of a sudden you get taken control of by something and you just say stuff you don't know yourself. That is occultic, Okay. If prophecy is a gift that God, the Apostle Paul says, I would that you all prophesied. You share your faith. Prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. I didn't mean to mock right there. I, and so I do sincerely apologize there. But there are people that I think just aren't used, don't let God use them because they think somehow or another that God's just going to take over all of their faculties. They're going to lose their minds and not know what they're doing and something wonderful is going to happen. God uses people who willingly submit and apply themselves. Amen? So the 42 months, according to Daniel, going back to Daniel, is the kind of a time. It's an era of suffering. All right, let me say it again. It's a kind of a time. It's an era of suffering. 
If you remember, this will be the third time in this series that I brought this up. You cannot press every number to be a literal number because if you press every number to be a literal number, then you're going to be stuck with, is there only this many witnesses? Is there only this many? You know, you, these are symbolic numbers. And in Daniel, it's an era of suffering. We saw that that era was fulfilled during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we, I preached and taught on this for two weeks in a row in our Daniel series before we got to Revelation of how that, that Antiochus sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies of the Old Temple. How that Titus came along and set up an idol in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is predicting a time, an era of suffering that will come about. So I wouldn't press these numbers to be a literal three and a half years. Could it be? Perhaps. It wouldn't surprise me because not every time that you look at a number is it not a literal number. However, I wouldn't press those because if you do, you can get into all kinds of trouble, especially when you start talking to people and you have to defend some of those other numbers you want to make literal. That's the problem that I have with Hal Lindsey is that he makes literal the numbers he wants literal and then makes the other numbers symbolic that he wants symbolic without giving me proof. If you give me statistics, I want to know what you're basing your statistics on. Does that make sense? Are you following with me? Did I lose anybody right there? Okay, good. Two witnesses is the minimum number of prescribed witnesses in the Bible. The minimum number. Let me run you through four verses of Scripture very quickly here. How much time do I have left? But never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must always be two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus sending out his disciples in Mark 6, 7, he calls his 12 disciples together and began sending them out how? Two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. One day as these men, and this is in the book of Acts chapter 13, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul. How many is that? How many? Appointing Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid hands on them and sent them on their way. So how many went? Two, Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, and there they sailed for the island of Cyprus. This, again, is an important number. These two men represent something that I believe is very important. It's the ongoing ministry of believers even after the rapture of the church. There will be a church. There will be people being saved. There will be people coming to know Christ. One of the most precious pictures that I see in Tim LaHaye's excellent series of novels, I, I'd recommend reading them. One of the most excellent pictures is the, is the pastor who wasn't really living like he should and missed the rapture, and yet he repented of his sins when he realized what happened and was able to become a strong preacher and teacher. You see the rabbi Ben Judah, if I remember his name correctly, he became converted and he began preaching using the internet and all of that. There will be a church. The Holy Spirit is not taken out of the world. The believers are raptured out of this world, but there will be people coming to know Jesus Christ because of the presence of the Spirit and the testimony of the Word of God that is still here. You tracking with me so far? Now, what I want you to see is, because this is going to be important as we go through the rest of the book, is contrast these two godly men with the two evil leaders that are about to rise. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon, and he exercised all of the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and his people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. We will get there, but I just want you to see, you're seeing two godly men compared with two evil leaders. Why I want you to look ahead just a little bit is these two witnesses like you and I, we boldly challenge the evil rulers of our world. We boldly challenge those who preach evil, do evil, and try to proclaim evil as good. Anybody that tries to say that marriage is the creation of the state is a liar. The state nor the church gave us marriage. God gave us marriage. Marriage is a holy ceremony. Can you say amen to that? 
and God is the one that prescribed to define marriage. So we have to challenge those statements. Now, here's what's particularly important. Because they didn't challenge with weapons. They didn't challenge with armies. They didn't challenge with bombs. They didn't challenge by screaming. They challenged by preaching the Word of God. They didn't challenge by violence. It's the world who does violence. It's the evil one who does violence. They die, but they overcome in their martyrdom. And isn't that what we've been reading about all through the book of Revelation? The blood of the martyrs, those who, who conquer. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them. He will conquer them and kill them. Revelation 13, 7. The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Look at verse, chapter 12, verse 11. They have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? What makes them overcomers is that they don't try to fight using the weapons of this world. We'll be getting to there in just a few weeks on Sunday morning as we preach through Ephesians. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We don't love our lives even unto the death. Their bodies, I've got to skip down. I'm running quickly out of time. Their bodies lie buried for three and a half days. That's a sign of how shamefully treated they were. The enemies, enemies didn't even do that to one another. It's not the biblical worldview, but the, the ancients and a lot of the pagans believed that if you were not buried, your soul was doomed to wander the earth. They believed that if you went down in a shipwreck, and you, since you weren't buried, that your ghost kind of circled the place that went down in the ship. That's the reason there's so many legends that grew up like that. You remember, and, and I'm not trying to be crass, but if you remember when Osama bin Laden was killed, there was all of this discussion about how his body was disposed of because of what the Muslims believe about a burial and the afterlife. It's not the biblical worldview. But to leave them unburied, this was the world's way of declaring how much they hated the preaching ministry of these men of God. And I don't know if you've ever been despised because of your witness for Christ or you've ever been persecuted. We don't worry about losing our lives here. We can preach and teach, but I'm going to tell you, there are places in the world where tonight people's lives are on the line. Notice what the world does. They exchange gifts at their murder. The world starts sending presents to one another. This is a reference back to Purim in the book of Esther. It's the very reversal of Purim. For when the, the people that were going to destroy the Jews, the people who wanted to kill the Jews, when in turn, it turned on them and God delivered His people, and this is what your Jewish neighbors celebrate when they celebrate Purim, the Bible says, so to this day, rural Jew Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. Those early Christians, and those remember the first century church was primarily Jewish, they understood this. They knew the symbolism here. The world wishes them dead because of their convicting preaching. And then the two witnesses are resurrected. Mark, come on up if you would, please, sir. They're resurrected and called up into heaven. This is so important. So let me read you these three verses. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up, and terror struck all who were staring at them. Does that remind you of somebody else? Jesus was crucified in a city called Jerusalem, and on the third day he rose again. Now he was buried, but on the third day he rose again. What's he saying? I believe Romans 8, 2 speaks to this. Because you belong to him, Jesus. Because Bob, Debbie, you belong to him. Vic, you belong to him. There's something different about you. And it's real easy in this world to forget it. It's real easy to forget it. And that is that you have eternal life right now. You have eternal life right now. You have an anointing 
right now. You're a child of God right now. You're a prophet, priest, and king right now. Not in the days to come, but right now. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. It's the reason death holds no terror to the followers of Jesus Christ. It's the reason that these people who knew that their brothers and sisters were being sewn in animal skin, their lips were being sewn together before they were dipped in pitch and tar and lit for Nero's parties, the reason they would suffer and die, death had no terror for them. They knew that this momentary suffering would be over because they had eternal life right now. Right now. And though they may have lay there three and a half days on those city streets, corruption was taking over, their bodies were decaying, maybe animals had even attacked their bodies. Get that picture in your mind. I don't care what sin has done to you. When the Spirit of God enters into your body, you're going to rise up. And you're going to be filled with the power of God. You're more than an overcomer. You are more than an overcomer. And when the early church read this, when the early church read this, they weren't thinking about CNN. They weren't thinking about Fox News and satellites. They were thinking about their brothers and sisters. They were thinking about the suffering. They were thinking about the persecution that came as the gospel spread, as we looked at in those seven letters. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. John 20 and verse 22, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Why is that number two so important? Don't miss this, and I'm so sorry for being a little late, but you can leave if you want to, but you'll regret it. I promise you, you'll regret it. It's very unusual to find two people doing the same thing all the time. I love my bride. I've called her half a dozen times today because I miss her so much. I love my wife. We don't do the same thing at the same time all the time. Matter of fact, there's something she wants to do. I'm just happy to let her go do it as long as I don't have to go do it with her. And she's the same way. There's something unusual in this symbolism. Everything they do, they're doing together. And LaHaye captures that beautifully, if not colorfully and dramatically, he captures that beautifully. They prophesy. They bear witness to Christ. And that's the job of every passionate follower of Christ that we can do together, no matter your personality type, no matter your spiritual gift, no matter your calling, we can all bear witness to Jesus Christ and trust that the Word of God as it flows through us will consume our enemies and the enemies of the gospel. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? So just four points tonight. Number one, I want the power of the Holy Spirit to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Number two, I want to share my witness with you. I want us two by two. I want us, not that we're the same personality types or have the same spiritual gifts, but I want us to celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. Can you say amen? I want us to do that together. Celebrate His love. Persuade people. I want to pray that signs and wonders are going to happen again. In the Bible, signs and wonders are for unbelievers. Miracles are for Christians. And I've taught on that, and I may teach on that again on a Wednesday night. But in the Bible, signs and wonders were all about, it was to persuade unbelievers that God was who He says He was. Miracles was for believers. Tonight, we need to pray for some miracles. But we also need to pray for signs and wonders. And then finally, I want, when I read Revelation chapter 11, I want to be faithful unto death. I want to be faithful unto death. Those people tonight who give their life for Jesus Christ, they're going to be real close to the throne. It's both exhilarating and terrifying to have the word of the Lord. It's exhilarating and terrifying to be close to God. But when you are, you fear no evil, for thou art with me. Would you stand with me tonight? 
Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful, descriptive, symbolic, prophetic chapter. And I hope that no one feels that I've insulted their favorite prophecy teacher. But instead, Lord, I've just tried to say, here's what the Bible says, and you can compare it. So I pray, make us like Bereans, because we can understand this. And Lord, whatever we preach tonight, we won't have to apologize for a hundred years from now, because it's been your word. Lord, help us to understand if we try to stretch these things too far and misapply them, then God, we may end up having to say, I'm sorry. But Lord, as we stay close to your word and look at the symbols as they've taught us in the Bible, we can be confident we're standing on solid ground. Now make us bold, expressive lovers of Christ and a lost world and make us passionate followers with an anointed spirit-empowered ability to persuade lost people to come to Jesus Christ. Before you go home tonight, there was older people who literally believed in the soon return of our Lord and Savior. They're the ones that stood by my bedside week after week, month after month, and year after year. I was just thinking about this just recently, asking the Lord to help me uncover and remember things. I don't remember young people with the exception of my mom and dad. But I remember elderly people who had the time, they weren't working. They would come and sit with wires and tubes, casts, and they would pray, pray in the Spirit and lay hands upon me. They'd relieve my mom and dad. And I want to say to some of you tonight in this room, you may think that what God is looking for is young people. He'll use them, but your greatest hour of ministry is right now if you know how to pray and if you know how older women to teach younger women, older men to teach younger men, and build those relationships. You were meant for more than Fox News, mall walking, and shopping. You were meant to be a powerful force in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? God bless you. Good night. If you need prayer, I'll be glad to pray with you down here at the altar tonight. Amen.